First John chapter three, verse one. First John chapter three, verse one. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. I will. We shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He, that is Jesus, is pure. Father, would You please pour out Your Spirit on Your perfect Word so that it will do a powerful work in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Historically, uh, the month of Sundays that lead up to Christmas is called Advent. And the word Advent simply means coming. In the month of Sundays leading up to Christmas, we simply prepare ourselves to celebrate His coming. And specifically, we are celebrating His first coming. And so uh, even if you have very little familiarity with Christianity, you'll be familiar uh, with uh, the baby born in a manger and with the angels who sang outside of uh, Jerusalem and or outside of Bethlehem. And, uh, and, and the events of the first coming of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things, though, that I uh, read many years ago that made me scratch my head and intrigued me was to learn that Christians have not just focused historically on Christmas during the Advent season. That is, the main focus of the Advent season hasn't always been the first coming. In fact, throughout church history, during the Advent season, during that month of Sundays leading up to Christmas Day, Christians have historically focused on both the first and the second coming of Jesus. There's been a sense in which His appearing, His, his coming, both in Bethlehem and then His return when He comes down from in the clouds returning to earth, these have both been the focus of Christians as they look at the Advent season. Now, what is the second coming? It's possible I mentioned that. And someone's like, I don't even know what that means. What are you even talking about? Well, one person's defined it this way. It's the return of Jesus at the end of the world when He comes to judge the world and to enter the fullness of His kingdom. Jesus came once, and Jesus is promising to come again. These uh, comings are so inseparable that when we read Isaiah chapter 9 at the beginning of the service, I don't know if you noticed this, but when you read Isaiah 9, Isaiah does what really most of the Old Testament does. He basically makes no distinguishing between the two comings. 
He says, he says uh, there will be one who comes and destroys all war and every battle tumult will be destroyed. Well, that's clearly talking about the end of the age. And then he says a passage that we all think of when we think about Jesus being born in a manger. For unto us a son is given. Unto us a child is born. So in the Old Testament, this, this uh, promise that there will be a son who's given and then he will destroy all evil is viewed as one thing. But as we get into the New Testament, we see that it comes in two appearings, two comings. First, Christ coming as a baby, coming in weakness, coming in fragility, coming to die. And at the second coming, coming from the sky, coming with power, coming to judge, coming to rule, coming to reign, coming in power. I got a text this morning from a dear sister in the church asking me to remember the grieving this Christmas season. Remember that there's many for whom the Christmas season is not sweet but sour. And it's actually always been a burden of mine to remember that. And I think part of the reason Christmas is such a torment for those who've lost loved ones or whose families are so strained is because we don't present Christmas as it actually is. We present Christmas as full of all kinds of nostalgia, like a Norman Rockwell painting. It's happy times around a happy table. And for those who don't have their loved ones and have happy times around a happy table, Christmas is a bitter disappointment. But here's the deal. If you focus on the second advent at Christmas, then Christmas is all about the end of all sad times. Then Christmas is all about the end of all pain and the end of all sorrow, the reunion of all believers and the reconciling of all things to God in Christ. And that is a holiday that every single Christian, whether their life is on the uptick or on the downturn, can celebrate. To begin our look at the second coming, I want to begin by looking at 1 John chapter 3. Verses 1 through 3. And I want to look at 1 John because it gets us started on just a very practical and hopeful note of the second coming. So let me begin. I read the passage. Let me begin just by giving you a little context about 1 John, the letter. In, in the letter of 1 John, John is writing to a church that had experienced a church split. Uh, this church split was not over the color of the carpet, though. It was over essential Christian doctrines. You literally had people leaving the church because they were rejecting essential Christian doctrines. That's why we have that verse that many of us know in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If anyone leaves your church over the color of the carpet, you don't say, they weren't even of us. It's not the kind of pronouncement you would make. Rather, this is a, a departure over who Jesus is. And so John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So there's been this split in the church that John is pastoring. And you can imagine if you've ever been through that kind of a thing, the kinds of weary and torn hearts that the Christians would have had that John is writing to. 
And so in the midst of that kind of difficulty, John reasserts the basics of our faith. He reasserts who Jesus is and what the Christian life is. And one of the great truths that John asserts, one of the great truths that John confesses, one of the great truths that John lays down is the teaching of the second coming. Because that teaching has always been a great encouragement to God's people. Now, one of the statistics I was um, I just marveled to read, there actually isn't completely complete agreement on exactly what the statistic should be, but you'll get the picture. Uh, some scholars will say that one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament is about the second coming. Now, other scholars will say, wait, 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 no, no, it's actually one out of every 30. The scholarly consensus is it's a lot. You're talking about one out of every 25 to one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament. You can't read a page without coming across teaching on the second coming, Christ's glorious return. And so that's the teaching that John raises here. You see it in our verse in chapter 3, verse 2, when you hear the word appearing. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Now John had actually raised this teaching of the second coming just a few verses earlier. So in chapter 2, verse 28, he says, and now little children abide in him. That is, keep believing in him. Keep walking with him. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, it's something future. It's not something in the past. His appearing, John speaking about, is not something that's already happened. It's something they're anticipating. And he says, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him and shame at his coming. Those two words, and you'll find many others, and we'll explore them over the coming months, month, describe the second coming. Appearing, coming, advent. This is what John is focusing on in this passage. Now, I just want to make two, and maybe three, but we'll just announce two for now, uh, points from this teaching. One, understanding that the second coming hasn't happened gives every Christian a joyful and healthy dose of realism. You can destroy your joy by expecting too much out of the Christian life. Testimony time. I have often destroyed my joy by expecting too much out of the Christian life. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 gives every Christian a healthy and joyful dose of realism. Let me show you what I mean. First of all, John tells us that being a Christian is very good. It's very good. First John chapter 3, verse 1. Beloved. He speaks to us like the way he, he tells us that we're to love one another throughout the book of John. He models it here. Beloved. Beloved. We should speak to each other that way, shouldn't we? Beloved. 
And then he says, beloved, we are God's children. All these people who had been dead in trespasses and sins, who had been rebels against God, who were due the wrath of God at their death, now what are they? The babies born to Jesus. They're sons and daughters of God. They are the very children of the Almighty. And John says, see it? Look at it. Don't pass over this. We're liable to miss how glorious what God has done in our life really is. Beloved, we are God's children. And then he gives us this healthy dose of realism. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Now, I used to read that verse as sort of a statement of mystery. What we will be. Who knows what it will be? Will you, you be a unicorn or a dragon or a carpenter or a prince? I mean, who knows? That's not at all what John is saying. He knows exactly what you're going to be because he says in the next part of the same verse you're going to, what you're going to be. You're going to be just like Jesus. We have no idea what Jesus is like. Yes, we do. We have four Gospels and all these epistles that explain to us what Jesus is like. We have a reasonable understanding of what Jesus is like. So when John says, we do not know what we will be, he is not saying it's just a total mystery what the future of a Christian is. He's simply stating with a healthy dose of realism that what we will be has not yet appeared. Now notice he uses that appeared language. This is the language he uses when he talks about Christ appearing. Later on in chapter 3, you can go look it up later, he talks about Christ first appearing at Bethlehem. Then we just looked a minute ago at how he will appear. He's coming to appear again. But here what we're told is our appearance hasn't come yet. We haven't appeared to be all that we will be. You could maybe compare the Christian to a child in its mother's womb. It's born. Oh, sorry, it's not born. Sorry about that. That's not true. Uh, it's alive. It kicks. Sometimes it rolls. You can see its spine across a mother's belly. There's all kinds. If you get an ultrasound, you can maybe even make up facial features. If you get one of those 4D ultrasounds, you can maybe even say, I think it looks like its dad or its mom. But what the child will actually look like does not appear until the child is born. And in the same way, you and I have been born again. But the fullness of what we will be like will not appear until Christ's second coming. You are not all you were meant to be yet. And that's very good news. That's very good. Now that resonated. <laughs> Why did it resonate? It resonated because the Christian has deep hungers to be like Jesus. Deep longings to be like Jesus. And yet the Christian experiences a holy dissatisfaction, H-O-L-Y, a holy dissatisfaction that they are not yet like Jesus John tells us we have not yet appeared as what we will be fully like. Physically, we're not 
what we will one day be. We have sore feet, sore knees, sore hips. There was one dear old lady at Emmanuel when I first came, and when I would visit her in the hospital, we would start with her toes and go to the top of her head and just diagnose everywhere there was pain. She was not all she was going to be, and actually is now safely in the arms of Jesus. The book of Corinthians tells us that our bodies are right now flesh, blood, perishable, like the milk in your fridge, mortal, dust, dishonorable, weak, and merely natural. The Bible tells us our outer man is decaying. Some of you have actually seen that in your teeth. Parts of you rot. It's an amazingly humbling thing. Bones decay. Discs bulge. Yesterday I was speaking to Mike Withers at a wedding and I told him I had to start getting reading glasses. He goes, oh yeah, normally that starts at 42. For me it started at 47. I got five extra years. But it's over. The days of perfect eyesight are gone. And it's only going to get worse from here. On top of being physically not what we were meant to be, we are, no, we are not morally what we were meant to be. Now we are being renewed. The outer man is decaying and the inward man is being renewed. So there is a sense in which we're getting better. There is a sense in the inner man, we're growing. One of the great joys uh, of pa pastoring you and knowing so many of you for 5, 10, 15, 20 years is to see that progressive work of the Spirit, not just this week or in that one Bible study, but over time, Christians maturing. We are, in one sense, getting better. But all of our moral improvements are opposed and imperfect. All of our moral improvements are opposed and imperfect. Galatians 5 says the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The Spirit's like, yes, Jesus, I want to serve you. The flesh is like, maybe later. And maybe not. And no. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Calvin said, all of our greatest intentions experience a backward pull. Now I know uh, the World Cup is going on, so that means five or six Americans care about soccer uh, right now. But if you've uh, ever uh, watched these amazing athletes, it's, it's amazing. Some of these guys can run like a, a marathon in the course of a game. It's an amazingly, I mean, you, you do a lot not to score all those goals. And, 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 and can you imagine if all of those athletes with all that tremendous ability were all of a sudden playing with weights on their wrists and on their ankles, maybe one of those weighted vests you use in CrossFit, and the soccer ball was replaced by a 15-pound medicine ball. These superb athletes with strong desire to be the best in the world would be reduced 
to slow motion. And so often our Christian lives feel like that. You get up in the morning and read the Bible, you're like, yes, Lord! I want to see people come to Christ and my family established for Jesus and my church of praise and a glory in the earth. And he's, you know, it's just, it's a backward pull. We don't appear as we will one day appear. But recognizing that our redemption is not yet complete helps you to not be too frustrated with yourself. It helps you to not be too frustrated with the church you're a part of. It helps you to not be too frustrated with the advance of God's kingdom. And, and I know there's a tension here because there ought to be a, a holy desire. And I know I have it in my own soul. Lord, revive your people. Lord, pour out your spirit. Lord, advance your kingdom. I want that. But I'm going to tell you what, even when the Holy Spirit is poured out in, in the times of the greatest fullness that he's been poured out in the history of this world, the church is still moving at a snail's pace compared to what God is able to do. Compared to the way we will run for Jesus in heaven. And understanding this, that the fullness of your salvation will never arrive this side of the second coming is a tremendous source of the virtues you need to make it to the second coming. Patience. Forbearance. Contentment. All of these are built up in our souls when we recognize the great second act of redemption has not yet come. And there are certain realities that will never be experienced in their fullness until it does. Which creates a, just a very liberating sense of it's not okay. And I guess in a sense that's okay. And it makes you a little less disappointing to me. And it makes me a little less disappointed. I mean, what could he do? He hasn't been raised from the dead yet. He's somewhat limited. This passage gives us a healthy dose of realism. What we will be has not yet appeared. Second point, it gives us a glorious vision of change. Notice it's what we will be. It's not what might happen, what maybe is gonna happen, it's what we will be. There is something we will be. What is it that we will be? Well, the passage says, we know that when he, that is Jesus, appears, we shall be like him him because we shall see him as he is. Jesus is going to appear a second time, not in weakness, not as a baby in a manger, but as the Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords descending from the clouds. He is going to appear, we will see him, and that sight will be 
instantly and miraculously transformative for every believer. There is no progressive sanctification in the second coming. There is no slow growth of the Christian in the second coming. When you want to raise a child, you put food in their mouth every day and eventually they're full grown. But in the second coming, he will give us one sight of him to the eyes and we will be just like Jesus in a moment, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, you will be impossible to improve. Just like the Son of God. When we see Him, we will be glorified. And we will come to share something of the resurrected glory of Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. Listen to that word, appears. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. How glorious can you imagine the second coming of Jesus to be? Add all the sparkle and shine and trumpet blasting you can imagine. I'm sure you won't outdo the moment. Add it all. You'll share in it. When He appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. Same truth, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. We will go from being lowly. We will go from being weak we will go from being dishonorable, perishable, to imperishable, glorious, and transformed to an exalted body. Uh, the quadriplegic hero of the faith, Joni Erickson Tata, said she is going to pole vault over the pearly gates. And every believer will have the absolute power to do likewise. But the physical change will be accompanied by a moral change. We will be like Him. And the highlight of Him is not His body. The body is essential. But the highlight of Jesus is that He's sinless. That He's glorious. One commentator wrote, in eternity, Christians will be morally without sin. Intellectually, without falsehood or error. Physically, without weakness or imperfections. And filled continually with the Holy Spirit. That's a good day. But it's not going to be a day. It's going to be forever and ever. World without end. Notice the care of that comment. The care with which the author wrote that comment. He, he said, we will be intellectually without falsehood or error. Now that's very important because he didn't say we'll know everything. When you see Jesus, you won't become God. We will see the God-man and we will be Christ-like, but we will not be God. Because one of the most glorious realities of God is He can't make another person God. His glory He will not share with another. 
We'll be just like him in character. We won't be omniscient, knowing everything. We won't be omnipresent, being everywhere. We won't be omnipotent, having all power. We will be omni-Christ-like. We will be like Christ in every dimension of our being. Now think about all the frustrations you experience in the Christian life. You desire to do right, and there's that backward pull. You don't know what to do or to say. I want to do what's right, Lord, but I, I don't know the Bible well enough. I don't know how to answer this person. I don't know what the right thing to do is. You don't have all the strength to do all the good you want to do. You're like, I would love to disciple all these people, but I need nine hours of sleep. Or for some of you, because of sickness, nine hours of sleep and then a nap and then another nap and then a hospital stay. Or you lack power. Oh, I can't tell you how many times I've preached and thought, oh Lord, I know what you can do through one sermon. I've heard about Whitfield. I've heard about Wesley. I've heard about what you can do through one sermon. He's never done it through one of my sermons, but I know he can do it. We lack intellectual knowledge. We lack power. We lack physical strength. We lack that freedom to overcome completely the backward pull. When Christ appears, all of those things will be gone. You'll have every bit of energy to do everything you desire to do, and all your desires will be to do what is right. Augustine put it so well so many years ago. Charting the different ways humanity has experienced life under God, he said Adam and Eve were able to sin. They didn't have to, but they could. They were able to sin. He said after the fall, we are not able not to sin. You couldn't stop trying if you tried. You couldn't stop sinning if you tried. After conversion, we are able not to sin. We don't always not sin, but we have the power not to. And once we see Jesus, Augustine said, we will be not able to sin. What a good day. What a good eternity. On that day, when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass. Well, it looks like we will get to that third point. And the third point is this. It's the reminder, it's a reminder of the true character of a Christian. Look at verse 3. It's a reminder of the true character of a Christian. And everyone who thus hopes in him, everyone who hopes in this returning Jesus, everyone who hopes in this Jesus who came to pay for our sin and is coming back, everyone who hopes in him purifies himself. Now I found out this week I've been reading this verse wrong for years. I thought for years what this verse meant was, if you hope in him, that hoping in him will purify you. That's actually true. It's just not what this verse means here. If you hope in him and see him, it will purify you. We, with unveiled face, are beholding the glory of God and are being transformed one degree of glory to the next 
as we look to him. That's right. That's good. That's true. It's just not 1 John 3.3. 3. 1 John 3.3 3 is saying this. If you're someone who hopes in Jesus and his second coming, you will also be someone who purifies themselves every time. There is no such thing as a person who hopes in Jesus' second coming and neglects to purify themselves here on earth. Isn't that consistent? If you know 1 John at all, you know this tremendous emphasis on the inevitability of change. You, you will walk in holiness, tells us. And John is saying, everyone, 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 everyone who believes in the second coming, if they have an actual and true belief in the second coming, they will purify themselves. They will flee sin. They will run away from the thing. Why would they want to live like hell on their way to heaven? They'd be so uncomfortable there. And I wish I had time to get into it this morning, but and probably will over the next month, this is the continual exhortation. The main application from end times teaching is not, hey, I got some charts in my office that you can look at all day and be confused by. That's not the main emphasis of end times teaching in the Bible. The main emphasis of end times teaching is all, always in the Bible. The end is coming, so live like it. You're going to be new, and there's a new heavens and earth coming, so live like it. What sort of people ought we to be? if there's a new heavens and a new earth coming. And I thought to myself, and it was reconfirmed, I saw a bunch of young men over here looking at you guys. I thought, man, do they even know the basics of these things? I saw all these young people here, I thought, man, do we, even, do we tell people enough about just the basics of how you purify yourself? What does it look like to purify? Everyone does it. Everyone who believes in the second coming purifies yourself. Well, what should, you, what should your lifestyle look like? What should your lifestyle look like if you're going to purify yourself? Let's give you a few things and I'll sit down. First, it would mean that you would listen weekly to the preaching of God's Word. It's not just a preacher plug. It's this fact. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. You want to live by faith and not live in sin? Whatever is not from faith is sin. You want to live by faith and not walk in sin? You want to walk in purity? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. What if everyone in this church made it their goal to get a good night's sleep on Saturday, to prepare themselves to Sunday, to pay attention, to listen to the word of God? Well, that seems so boring. I want to do something radical. That is radical. That'll result in purified people. That'll change your congregation. Second thing, just real basic. What do you do if you want to live a pure life? What, what do you do? You get together with other Christians who will encourage you. You get together with them all the time. You get together with them as much as you can. Definitely Sunday morning as God calls us together. The writer of the Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. If you were there when I got pie in my face on Friday, if you're a young person, just stand up right now. Just stand up right now. Okay? Now stay standing. Stay standing. You're good. Stay standing. Okay. This congregation has been built by people who've been devoted, devoted, 
to gathering together and encouraging one another. And I think if, if, this, if this group of young men and women would come every single Sunday to youth and the different things they're a part of and just make it their aim to encourage one another, we, we would see an effective transition of transfer of the faith to the next generation. You are some fine young men and women. It's so encouraging to see God working in you. And I want to encourage you. Make this the habit of your life to purify yourself. Gather with God's people and then encourage each other. All the more as you see the day approaching. You can sit down. Thank you for enduring that agony. I'm sure that was, sure that was very purifying for you. Last thing, last thing. You want to purify yourself from sin, you need to go to God for his purification. You want to purify yourself from sin, you need to go to God for his purification. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, if we admit we're unpure, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If this is a congregation that admits there's impurity in our midst, confess it, open with it. Not trying to pretend we're something. We've got it together more than we do. If we confess our sins, He will wash us clean by His blood. And He'll provide the power for us to walk in righteousness. So Emmanuel, this Advent season, and hopefully for the rest of our lives, let's think about the second coming. Let's think about it. Taking in and enjoying the realism that comes when you realize it's not here yet, so this life's going to be a slog. And then basking in the reality that there is complete and total and immediate deliverance coming to us when Christ splits the clouds. And don't just hear me say life's a slog. There is the ability to purify ourselves. The Spirit has been given. God can help us. There is the ability to walk in greater purity. Yes, there's a backward pull, but there's a spiritual push from the Holy Spirit. And as we really together with our children just instill those good practices, hearing God's Word, gathering and encouraging, confessing and repenting, God will purify His people and take us safely home to heaven where we will enjoy fellowship with Him forever, world without end. Father, thank You so much for Your great grace and Your great help. Thank you for the meal we're about to receive, which points us all the way forward to when you will dine with us. Lord, we praise you for your great grace. In Jesus' name, amen.